It's really great to be here and thank you for your welcome. Uh, there is something quite special, by the way, about hearing a group of men singing. It is fabulous, isn't it? There's a whole different tone than you would have if you're in a mixed congregation. Uh, I love mixed congregation singing as well. But hearing a group of guys singing, the, the depth of it is, is fabulous. And it reminded me actually of... Um, where my wife comes from, she comes from South Wales, the South Wales Valleys. And it used to be mining country. Every village you go into had a mine. And that mining just dominated the whole landscape. And when the Welsh Revival broke out, there were so many miners who became Christians that the mines were full of believers. And at the end of a shift after digging coal for hour after hour in those dark, horrific conditions... The guys begin to walk out of, of the, um, the, the pits to get washed up, and they burst into song. And these mind shafts would echo with the ver- reverberations of, of worship to God. Uh, I, I wish I'd have been alive back then. That would have been an amazing thing to, to, to witness. Sadly, now South Wales is a spiritual desert. It's awful, really awful. But we need those kind of revivals again. I'm glad to be here and in particular delighted to, to be able to talk on the subject that Sandy gave me because um, I think we have a real deficit today, a massive deficit of Christian men neglecting their responsibility and it's a major issue, it's a major issue. We have been called as men to be leaders spiritual leaders in the community, in the church, in our families and there's a massive deficit. We're just not doing it. I read a stat two days ago that that, that, uh, sent shivers down my spine. It it terrified me actually. At the moment, and I, I work for a mission society, at the moment, three quarters of the world's missionaries are women. Now praise God for those women. But three quarters are women. Where's the men? And half of those, of course, are single women. So there are more single women on the mission field than there are men. It's astonishing. And I look at churches, and I go around lots and lots of different churches, both in this country and elsewhere. I was in France a couple of weeks ago. And in most churches, the majority of people are women. And I don't just think it's that women are more spiritual than we are, although I think that is true. They're more malleable, more willing to submit themselves to God. But I also think they have more courage and a greater sense of responsibility. Now, you see that in life generally. How many single parent families do you see in your community? I see loads in Bellsdale or up in Yurtill, where I live, where Alan used to live as well. And most of them are women alone caring for their kids. And the guys know where to be seen. Because we have for, I think, generations now, produced generation after generation of men who are gutless. And feel no sense of responsibility. And we ought to be ashamed. And last year I was invited to go to a church. It's a, a fairly conservative uh, brethren church. That's, that's my background. And I was asked to speak in the role of women. And I've known of churches that have been split over the role of women. Now, I'm not negating the importance of theology. I think theology is hugely important. And I do take seriously passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy. But you know what? A bigger issue for me than the role of women and how we should express that in church 
is the role of men. And I sometimes feel ashamed because that particular church where I was asked to speak in the role of women, they support a lady whose name is Ruth Hadley. None of you, well some of you might know Ruth Hadley. But she's one of life here as a single lady who went out to Angola to be a missionary. She lived through the Civil War. Running Bible classes and, uh, and looking after schools. Having to drive through minefields to get to her work. And she now has cancer. She is one of the great heroes. And if she came back to some of the churches in this country, you know what? She wouldn't be allowed to give a report. Not publicly, not to a mixed gathering. Why? Because she's a woman. And most of the men in those churches wouldn't even be worthy to tie her shoelaces. Now, again, I'm not negating theology. And I'm not saying the church shouldn't have a position on the role of women. Uh, Though for me there's a gradation of the importance of theology. And for me the, the most important thing is, what does all of our service to Christ look like? With a deficit. And we as men need to wake up. And take our responsibilities. And if need be go back to our churches. And chastise some of the guys in our churches for their pathetic, pathetic experience of Christ. And Christian living. And that's why uh, some of the organizations next door being represented are trying to encourage men. To take up their responsibilities. Now what I normally do when I'm preaching is I'll take a passage and I'll spend a lot of time working through that passage in great detail. I don't want to do that uh, today because I had a phone call with Robert during the week. I got through to him by the way. He's had a really busy week. And uh, he's doing Acts 2 and he will do that detailed exposition of Acts 2. So I'm not going to do that. Instead what I want to do is, is, is tell a story. But it's a biblical story. Of one of the most remarkable guys in, script, in, in all of scripture, King David. And I'll tell you why I think he's remarkable. He's remarkable because he was a great man of God who was also flawed. Now, that's relevant for us because the greatest thing that we could ever be will be a great man of God who's flawed. Now, the flawed that we, we're already there. We are all flawed. Now, you might not have got to the great man of God bit yet, but you're all flawed. So am I. And I speak from a position of profound weakness because everything I'll talk about, I'm I'm struggling in all of these areas. All of these areas. But I want us to to, to race through the the highs and lows of David's life story. And and I'll be asking you to to flick through your Bible. We'll be going through a number of... um, Old Testament books from um, 1 Samuel all the way over to, to 1 Chronicles. And looking at uh, four passages, four incidents in, in the life of David that I think we need to, um, to really think about because they, they speak to us, speak to us powerfully about what we ought to learn as men if we want to end up being great men of God despite our flaws. And I'm going to start in um, uh, chapter 16 of, of uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And I'll start by reading a few verses from chapter 16. First of all, verse 1, then 5 to 7. And I choose this passage first of all because it deals with one of the key issues that all of us as guys struggle with, and that's self-esteem. 
It's amazing when you get a group of guys together how much bravado there can be in the room. And I've always said that the more bravado there is, the more insecurity there is. It's a cover. And we men are great at putting up a front to hide the brokenness and the struggles that we have. 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Down to verse 5. Samuel replied, Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come and sacrifice with me then. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord, uh, the Lord's anointed stands before me. The Lord said to Samuel, Do you not consider his appearance or his height? For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. I was at a a party about two months ago. (laughs) It was the kind of party I'd been to a thousand times. It was mostly fairly affluent businessmen who were there. It was a Christian event, by the way, but it was mostly fairly affluent businessmen who were there. And uh, I said a moment ago how quickly uh, all this uh, blagging and rubbish talk emerges. Uh, And this was just typical of that. No sooner had these guys got together and the coffee had been served when, as I went around the different groups, the boasting began. Guys talking about their business deals and their achievements and even who they managed to outwit in their company or bully into submission to get their own way. The the chat shifted over to to cars and, uh, well, what do you drive? Well, I've got got the new BM7 series. Oh, it's great tech. What are you doing driving an old Audi? And these are Christian men. And then it goes on to stuff like holidays and how they spend their leisure time. And we are all there to hear the word of God being preached. (coughs) And I remember thinking, not just what am I doing here, but also, why are we like this? (coughs) Why is it that we as men are so caught up with what people think of us? They're crippled by it. I kid you not, we are crippled by it. I I, I like to think that uh, in in lots of things I do reasonably well. Uh, And I can remember when I I went to do my uh, motorbike test. I've written about it before because one of the great shaming moments of my life. Uh, I set my bike test and I failed. Now, I'm not good at failure with stuff. And I was so embarrassed, I couldn't even phone or text my wife to say, I failed the bike test. It's only a motorbike test, so what? Mm-hmm. One of the guys has what he failed eight times. So what? It's too ashamed to tell my wife. And when I went home, she could see from the look at my face right away what had happened. She burst out laughing. 
And no one who's pathetic, a grown man, in depression because he failed a motorbike test. And so the next time I didn't do it in Glasgow, I went up to Kirkcaldy. I mean, there are chifters up there, so uh, there's no way they'll be as strict as the folk in Glasgow are. And I failed a second time. <laughs> and I totally embarrassed myself because I, I did all the stuff correctly. And I said to the owner, why do you fail me? He said, you, you broke the speed limit. I said, no I didn't. He said, you did. When you're coming up that hill from, from the harbour, it's a 40 mile an hour there, it changes to 30, and, and you kept it 45. I said, you're lying. I actually argued with him. Questioned his integrity, his honesty. He said, no, you failed. You broke the speed limit, you failed. And I was so mad with him, I got back in my car and I drove around the test circuit. And I climbed up that hill looking to see if the sign genuinely does go from 40 to 30. And you know what? It did. (laughs) And I had questioned his integrity. Thank God I didn't tell him I was a Christian. What a shameful thing. And it was my ego. I was concerned that people might think less of me because I failed the bike test twice. Isn't that shocking? Why are we like that? The stuff that is so unimportant seems somehow important to us. Now David is probably about 11 years old at this stage. Same to my son. And Saul, who's the king in Israel, has been a disastrous king. Why was he chosen to be king? We all know. Tall, handsome, heroic looking. All the worst reasons for choosing somebody to be a leader. And he was awful. If you read through um, 1 Samuel, it's depressing how bad Saul was. Superficial, rash, impetuous, unspiritual, feckless. Like lots of men in church. He was a disaster of a king. And eventually God says to Samuel, I'm just sick of saying, you're mourning. No wonder you're mourning because the king is rotten. But stop mourning. Let's just change the situation. Because I selected somebody else. And Samuel, this prophet, is sent to, uh, to, to, to a particular village to speak to Jesse, David's father. And to anoint the next king. And he goes there with a sense of excitement. Because at least we're going to have regime change now. We'll, we'll change the government. Get somebody new in. Somebody who can do the job properly. And when he arrived at Jesse's house. He said bring your sons to me. Now you know the story. Jesse starts to collect all of his sons. And Eliab is the eldest. And so therefore uh, in that culture. He's, he's the first choice. And he looks spot on. And notice. Even Samuel, the man of God, is hoodwinked by the wrong stuff. He's just lived through a decade of disastrous reign from Saul. Because he'd been chosen for the wrong reasons. And as soon as he sees alive, he thinks, oh, tall, dark and handsome. Great. History's about to repeat itself. And one of the most important verses in the whole passage. Verse 7. Where God says to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, our external success, all those superficial things. But the Lord looks at the heart. 
Now guys, if we could only grasp that, it would change our lives. I don't know what car you drive. And frankly, I don't care. Now, I'm a bit of a petrol head. If you do drive a BM7 series, can you give me a lift at at lunchtime? I've never had a go on one yet. I do love cars. But does that make you anything as a human being? Not at all. Uh, And your job, your achievements, do do they count for anything in real terms? Do you think God is impressed that you're in a six-figure salary? I mean, he owns the entire universe. Do you think that's going to impress him? We are caught up in our secular, materialistic society by imbibing the same values as the world around us. And we think it's important stuff that means nothing. And we don't ask the question, what's my heart like? Now your family know. Because when the doors are shut and the church can't see what you're doing, and you're just at home with your wife and your kids, and your wife's had a, tired, had a tiring day and she's exhausted and the kids have been a nightmare... And she asks you for a bit of help. They don't know what your heart's like. And you can stand as I do in front of a pulpit and, 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 and wax eloquent. And yet the real you is superficial and empty. But God is watching. He observes all of our lives. And he hasn't looked at the label on the shirt or the jacket that you're wearing because that's irrelevant to him he hasn't uh, listened to any of your funny jokes to see if they really are funny he's not particularly impressed whether or not you're cool he wants to know are you godly and humble and do you love him and are you sincere and when we sung those magnificent songs that Graham led us through so beautifully Did we actually mean it? Because we're so good at doing the verbal and coming out with words that we'll never actually live out. And that we don't actually mean. Don't look at the outside appearance because all that God looks at and thinks about is your heart. And David learned that in his 11 year old boy. It matters not what my culture thinks of me, what really matters is what is my heart like? Because that's the only thing that God sees. Now flick over to the very next chapter. And these two chapters are meant to be read as, as, a, as a flowing narrative. This is a story. And historically, chapter 17 would have taken place within a very short time of chapter 16. Now, Chapter 16, Jesse, notice, didn't even call David. Because he couldn't even conceive of the possibility. Couldn't even conceive of the possibility that his youngest son, who hadn't even gone through puberty, or might have just been gone through puberty, could ever be considered to be the next king. So he wasn't even there. He was still out tending the sheep. Even his own father didn't have faith in him. Hmm. We come to chapter 17 and there's a huge war going on. We'll just read a few verses from 20 to 26. The whole story is great, but for the sake of time, we'll only read from verse 20 to 26. 
of chapter 17. Early in the morning, David left a flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. And David left his things with the keeper of supplies and ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. And now the Israelites have been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give his daughter in marriage to him and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. And David asked the man standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, think of the context again. There is a war on and there is perpetually war between the Philistines and the Israelis. Not unlike today between Israel and Palestine, that conflict will never end. Because you get people groups who hate each other to the bottom of their, their, their hearts and they want to exterminate each other and every once in a while the border skirmishes would turn into a full scale battle and that's what happened here and in the valley of Elah um, on the border between Philistia and Israel the two armies line up now war in those days was an utterly bloody affair and, and awful because you don't necessarily have professional standing armies. You just call all the men together and they go and fight. And so lots of women become widows. Lots of fields can no longer be ploughed. It can bring economic ruin and hardship after a battle. And so what often happened was to save that disaster economically, they'd have what they call a representative battle where one champion from one side would come out to fight somebody from the other side. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw that Brad Pitt movie where that kind of representative battle takes place in the opening sequence and he takes on this huge big uh, warrior that he faces. It was that kind of situation. Uh, and what David encountered and what, what the Israelites had to face here was an absolute monster of a man who was not just trained from his infancy to be a killer and that was the Philistines but they're a warlike nation if you ever go out to um, somewhere like Kurdistan and meet Kurds they, they train their sons and daughters from as soon as they can walk how to use a gun it's no wonder the Kurds are defeating ISIS. They have been trained since birth to be warriors because they live in a conflict situation with three different countries. That was the Philistines. Not only trained from birth to be a warrior, but he was gigantic. Now, I love sport. 
I don't know if you recognize any of these guys. The guy on the left. He's my favorite American football player. Anyone remember his name? The Fridge. Perry. A monster of a man who broke the record for the number of helmets he broke playing American football. He, he ran into people with such ferocity. His helmet split in two sometimes. He's an enormous guy. Fearsome player. Uh, the guy on the right hand side, he's now dead, died fairly young. Jonah Lomu. Um, that's him trying to be tackled by an English, England player. <laughs> Lomu was about one second off the world record for the 100 metres. Six foot six and weighed 19 stone. Can you imagine that running towards you? <laughs> and the guy in the middle, he'll be playing this morning. Sonny Bill Williams, he's played both rugby league and rugby union, six foot four. Uh, he's also the heavyweight champion of New Zealand. Massive guy. Very humble man, by the way. He's a Muslim, did you know? Very humble man. And he fasted during the Feast of Ramadan, even though the, the Lions Tour is coming up. Very devout. Very humble. But having him run towards you? Massive. Goliath is bigger than any of these guys. Over nine feet tall. Even his spearhead was 25 pounds weight. That's enormous. Two stone for your spearhead. And his armor. Just his body armor weighed the same as Mike Tyson. Enormous. And day after day he would come out and he would challenge, does anybody want to fight me? And you see what happens. As soon as you come out, they all scatter. They shrink back. Nobody wants to take on this guy. Grown men terrified. But I suspect that lots of us face all kinds of fears in our lives, don't we? You go to your, your workplace, for example, and, and you know that you should be a Christian. Uh, you are a Christian. You know you should be a witness for Christ. You should stand up for what's right. You should, you should tell folk about Jesus. You should be open about you know, going to church and all that kind of stuff. But then look at the guy you work with. The most unsavory, foul-mouthed group of men you could ever come across. And you meant to live a holy life in front of them? Terrifying. You know that you should be um, somebody who is devoted to God's word. And listen to God speak to you day by day, shaping your life. And you go home after a tiring day at work. And the kids are screaming. And your wife wants some help. And you're already exhausted. And I know I should give some time to being with God and praying and reading, reading his word. But it's just too much for me. I'm tired. I'll, I'll just not do it today. And I shrink back defeated. Once more. You know you should have a sense of confidence about the way you live your Christian life. Believing that God can transform situations, make a difference. And yet that problem that you're facing right now, it just seems so overwhelming. How on earth can God sort this out? And you walk about with your head hung low, discouraged. That's what these guys are facing. 
a, a giant who, who, who was beating them day after day after day. And, and then suddenly David turns up. Now, he's not meant to be there because you have to be 14 before you're allowed to fight. And he's not 14 yet. He's just a kid. So he is back home looking after the sheep. But because the battle had gone on for longer than expected, his father gets worried, my boys will be running out of food. We only thought it would be a battle, so in a couple of days they'll be back. It's been day after day after day after day, they're still not back. They'll have no food left. So David takes some supplies to your brothers. So he's the errand boy. And he arrives in the battle scene, he, he walks to, 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 to run to meet his brothers. And they're all stood there and suddenly Goliath comes out. And when you look at the passage, it seems as if they all disappear and run back and David's left all alone. With this huge monster there. And he ought to be terrified as all of those guys are terrified. They're all warriors. He's not. He's just a wee boy. But you know what? He's not terrified. He is indignant. And it's not some kind of bravado. I don't know if you, if you recognize this guy here. I, I love uh, cage fighting, UFC. And uh, this guy is the mouthiest UFC fighter you'll ever come across. He's Irish. Conor McGregor. And he's about to switch codes and take on perhaps the greatest living boxer in the world today. I don't think he's going to get stuffed, but uh, nevertheless, he's mouthing away. Trying to wind up his opponent as he always does. He described Mayweather this week in the press as a, a, a Malteser with eyeballs. He said, my fist is bigger than his head. Now that's typical McGregor. He, he's going to get beaten, mind you, but that's typical McGregor. So mighty, so much bravado. This isn't bravado with David. He's not boasting like some reckless teenager. He's upset. Why? Well, look at the verse. Who is this Philistine? Okay, he's a giant. He's nine foot nine. Who is this that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, where is David's faith? Is it in those armies of Israel? Not really. It's in God. And he cannot believe that Men who claim to be Jews, claim to be men of God, are actually afraid in this situation. Now again, it's not this mouthy bravado. It's much more than that. Here is a young boy who is utterly convinced that whatever I have to face in life, God is greater. And that's how I live my life. Now, he's only a boy. We wouldn't take him seriously if he came to our churches. Oh, that's the irony. He's not even allowed to go to battle because he's under 14. If he came to your church and I'd like to preach, you'd say, Away at that door, son. Don't bother my head. And yet he's about to be the greatest leader at the age of less than 14 the nation has ever seen. Astonishing. And it's all about... Having an undying, utter confidence in God. I know I am weak. I know I am limited. But I worship a great God. <coughs> Is that what you're like when you're in the workplace? Praise and you know you need to make a stand for Jesus? 
Is that when you're like, what you like when you're in your home and you know that your wife expects spiritual leadership from you because she is struggling and she needs you to be strong? Do you have an undying faith in God? His greatness, His power to change any situation, to deliver you, to give you strength and help? That was David. And you have this comical scene where Saul is embarrassed that this wee boy is taking his place. He's the big, strong, you know, tall, dark, and handsome one. But he's scared. And so this wee kid goes out instead. And Saul is so embarrassed he tries to say, Well, take my armor. It doesn't even fit him. David said, No, no, no. Uh, I've had an experience already of God working in my life. Somebody mentioned earlier on a few moments ago the lion and the bear. That's quite right. He had faced those things just doing his job as a shepherd. In the everyday, in the everyday of, of, of humdrum daily life, working as a shepherd, he had, he had encountered difficulties. And God delivered him. It's when we experience God's help in the ordinary everyday things and learn to depend on him and trust in him that we build up those spiritual muscles that help us with the, the really big situations, the real challenges. You notice David's not to, to face this giant. And just because you believe in God and, and utterly trust in Him, that does not mean you won't have to face the problems in your life. But it's how you face those things that, that, that counts. And I don't need to tell you the rest of the story. But within days of this story finishing, right across Israel, people are singing the latest pop song. Saul has killed his thousands and David, a wee kid, has killed his ten thousands. And it wasn't that David had suddenly grown three feet tall and put on about three stone of muscle. He was still a scrawny wee kid. But people can see what a difference it makes when a boy is utterly, utterly committed to serving God and trusts God in every situation that God will be with me and I can be the person he wants me to be with his strength. Let's look over to, um, to Samuel. In chapter 11, the five saddest verses, I think, in the whole life story of David. And these five verses, 11, 1 to 5, are the fulcrum of the whole life of David in, in, in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. Everything up to this point is this rise and rise and rise and rise. Better look at the time. Everything up until this point, and David is doing uh, wonderful things as he serves God. He is winning battles. From this point onwards, read the rest of um, 2 Samuel. Right the way through to the end, it, it's, it's all downhill. These five verses defined, in many ways... His entire life. Verse 1. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. I'll read that again. Because we've been told something really important here by the writer. 
in the spring at the time when kings go off to war David sent Joab out was the king's men and the whole Israelite army and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah but David remained in Jerusalem says it all says it all One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the, of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Dropping strong hints here. And then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness when she went back home. <coughs> the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. We have jumped from David being about 12, 13, that kind of age, to him being 50. And in between those ages is a glorious life. First of all, standing up to Saul in his tyranny, being on the run, gathering his armies, sparing Saul several times, living with dignity, even though he's living in a very tough situation out in the wilderness. <coughs> then becoming king, growing the nation, winning battles, gaining worldwide respect, becoming feared. Loved as a man of God, great worship leader, musician, writer of a third of our Psalms, outstanding spiritual man, and now he's 50. It's important we realize that. I've given um, dozens and dozens of sex talks in my life. I used to do a lot of youth work. I don't do so much youth work anymore. I'm far too old for it. But uh, I'm still asked to do some sex talk at camps and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've always felt like I give them to the wrong people. It shouldn't be the 13 and 14 year olds I give sex talks to. It should be guys like you. And there's one very good reason. Don't misunderstand when I say this. If a 15 year old boy makes a mistake and has sex it's sin not a disaster if a married man with three kids has an affair it's as if the world has come to an end this is serious business this is not some pubescent teenager we're dealing with it's a man of God whose psalms we still sing thousands of years later. Who is a spiritual giant and a man after God's own heart. And a man coming towards his retirement. Pensionable age. And the seeds of destruction have already set in. Because back in Deuteronomy 17... Long before the monarchy actually began, even before they took possession of the promised land, 
Back then in Deuteronomy 17, when they were still in the wilderness, Moses gave some instructions. Now with the eye of prophecy, Moses realized that one day we'll have a monarchy. He didn't have it then, and it wouldn't come for hundreds of years. But he knew back then they would have a monarchy, and he says, when there is a monarchy, when we do have a king, there are several things a king should not do. One of them is, don't marry lots of wives. And David has done. Now his son was even worse, as you know. But David has done. And his wives are not all Jewish. That's a problem too. And we get to chapter 11, verse 1, and I read that deliberately in the way that I did because this is so important. Another battle has, uh, has sprung up, another war has started, and they need to go off to fight. And David is not only the most experienced warrior in the entire nation now, he's been fighting since he was, well... A kid. He knows how to lead his men into battle. He has their respect. He has their love. And as king, he should be leading the troops. But he decides, I'm just going to sit back. He sends Joab. That was a disaster. We have a responsibility as Christian men. In those three areas that Sandy mentioned, the publicity in church, in the home, in our workplace. God has placed you in all three of those situations. And you have responsibility. And the moment you stop taking your responsibility seriously, the devil will have you. He will have you. What's happened here? David gets up, and I don't know why he didn't go. Maybe he just thought, well, I'm old enough to, to take it easy. That is nonsense. I, I get a friend of mine who's a retired head teacher, but he does a lot of work with us in Central and Eastern Europe, doing Bible teaching and running camps and all the rest of it. He's away there at the moment. Now he's in his 70s. In his 70s. And he's currently at a youth camp, putting up tents, teaching the Bible, Speaking to the young guy, he texted me yesterday. Asked me how he was getting on. In his 70s, he's a grandfather. But labouring for God. And he's up seeing me, he's from South Wales, up seeing me a few weeks ago. And as we had a coffee, I said, how long do you think you can keep going for at this pace? He said, well, I think I've probably got a good 10 to 15 left in me. He'll be 90 by that stage. But he's serving God. Relentlessly. That should have been David, but it wasn't. And he goes out for a walk in his flat roof palace, the tallest building in Jerusalem, overlooking everything else. And you have all these lower flat roof buildings, and in one of them there's this gorgeous woman bathing. Now, David was at fault here, but Bathsheba wasn't exactly without responsibility. I think we've lost a real sense of modesty in our culture, haven't we? Have you noticed how, not only the, the immodesty of our culture, but the vulgarity? Have you noticed that? How utterly vulgar British culture has become. I had an African friend of mine from uh, Glow in Zambia who came to do some study at, at Tulsa, at, that's our college at Glow. Um, and after being in Scotland for just three weeks, he said to me, 
I don't know how any Christian can live in a country like this. He was shocked by the vulgarity of Scotland. He says, maybe we don't behave like this. We've got much more self-respect. David sees Bathsheba bathing. And it's interesting what happens. He looks and catching a glimpse is not in itself wrong. Because we can't help it. But we've got blinds, new blinds in our house. Which my wife has been pestering me about for a long time. We've got the blinds put in. The house behind us doesn't have blinds. And I have to confess to you, as up turning my, my oldest girl's bedroom, she, her bedroom's at the back. And as I looked out, uh, I don't know the neighbours around the back of our house, but we got our hedge cut. It, it was about 15 feet high, it's down to about 8 feet, so we can see the upstairs windows of the next door. And somebody was having a shower. Now I know it's frosted glass and all the rest of it, but with your imagination. And I stood there and then I thought, I have the David. I'm 51. Can happen to all of us. Nothing wrong with having a glance. It's when that glance lingers. And you know what? Only takes five seconds. And in five seconds you're into sin. Not long, is it? Five seconds you're into sin. And his aides were trying to um, restrain him by saying, uh, you've asked who that lady is, uh, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who happens to be one of your generals. So uh, you owe this guy big time. He's out bleeding for you in the battlefield, and, and that, that's his wife. <coughs> David Bethesda already inflamed. Couldn't hold himself back. And I don't need to tell you the rest of the story. What I will do is just give you a list that I wrote for myself some years ago. I shared it with guys in my church. I shared it with guys in other churches. I share it with you because this is my protection day by day. If you're married, maintain an open, frank dialogue with your wife. I don't care if you're 50 or 70. I remember years ago listening to an interview on the radio of... uh, the then uh, Chancellor of Moody Ministries, a man in his 90s, a great man of God who had built up Moody, uh, the whole Moody Bible College and their, their whole ministries, one of the key evangelical figures in America. And uh, in the conversation, he was quite jocular, quite a humorous guy. And the interviewer said to him, ah, What stage do you get to as a guy in your life when? Uh, a pretty woman walks past you and you don't allow your gaze to follow her. He said, I don't know, but I'll tell you when I get there. He was 90. Be open with your wife, honest. Pray about every fantasy, every illicit thought. Do you ever have lustful thoughts? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I confess I do. I won't ask you to put your hands up because if any of you didn't put your hands up, I'd be saying you're a liar. You're a bloke, after all. Safeguard your internet use. It is a great blessing and a massive danger. Well, then we do at work is we have 
um, one of those Christian organizations that help people like us and all of our computers are linked to a central system so that we can see what everybody in our workplace has downloaded onto their computer whatever is on their screen and an alert goes out to all the directors of Glow if they touch on a page that uh, is somewhat dicey be very very cautious establish an accountability structure it might be in church. Can I recommend this? By the way, we have that in church. The three of us as elders, I, I, I'm in a church with three elders. Every once in a while in our, in our elders meeting, we'll just have a time of confession. And we'll just talk openly with each other and confess our sins and pray for each other. As elders. We are holding each other accountable in lots of areas of our lives. Never put yourself in a daft position. Recognize flirting for what it is. When you're in the office with your secretary, you know what flirting is. It's anything that you wouldn't want to do if your wife was standing next to you. Admit to your weakness. Develop a healthy fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. We don't put much about fear anymore, do we? Fearing God is fundamental to our spiritual development. Intensity to devote yourself to your wife and actually tell your kids you'll always be faithful. I did that one day and, and, and folk laugh when I tell them this, but it, it actually happened. I, I was uh, preaching on a subject like this some years ago and I felt so convicted. I thought, i got to talk to my oldest girl. And she's finished uni, but she's back in high school back then. And I, I did the school run. And I was so convicted about this. I, I, I suddenly stopped the car and pulled the side of the road. And I said, Karen, I want to say something to you. And I looked her straight in the face and I said, um, I will never cheat on your mother. I want you to know that. And she said, Something happened, Dad? I said, no, no, nothing's happened. I just want to tell you, I will never cheat on your mother. He said, Dad, are you okay? I said, yes, I, I just want you to really understand this. I need your help to be a good husband to your mum. I will never cheat on your mother. And she burst into tears. And hugged me. And we sat there in the car, and uh, we cried together. I needed that. To see the emotion in my daughter's eyes, her voice, as we spoke about that issue, because her life would be blighted if I ever made a mistake. We were late for school, by the way. <laughs> I was in trouble for that too. Um, but if you've got kids, value them. And that means that how you behave in the home is of utmost importance. Now, again, you know the story, and time is gone, so I can't, uh, can't dwell on this. David's life was wrecked by one rash error. Let's not go there. Finally, 1 Chronicles, and this I finish, because time has gone. 1 Chronicles 28. And for me, this is, and I finish with this, the most, I think the most moving passage in the whole of David's life story. I'll just read verses 1 to 4. And try and picture the scene. He's now old really old he will be dead in months when Chronicles 28 David summoned all the officials of Israel to assemble at Jerusalem 
the officers over the tribes and commanders of the divisions of the services of the king, the commanders over thousands and commanders over hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the warriors, and all the brave fighting men. King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, a footstool for our God. And I made plans to build it, but God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you're a warrior and you shed blood. And the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. He chose Judah as leader. And from the tribe of Judah he chose my family. And from my father's sons he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. This is an incredibly moving scene. I want you to picture it for a moment. Just as we finish. David has been a king for the whole lifetime of some of these subjects of his. And despite his flaws, and they were significant, he's been outstanding. He was a man after God's own heart. The greatest king that Israel would ever have. But he was flawed. And he knows his time has come to an end, so he wants one last meal, one last moment with all the guys who've served with him, just to be with them. Guys who bled the battlefield, guys who have organized his kingdom, guys who have worked faithfully for him for, for all these years. He gets them all together. And he's feeble. And they've come from all over the empire and most of them will never see him again. Apart from the guys who work in Jerusalem himself, the rest will never see the king ever again. They'll go back to their homes, back to their positions of responsibility and then they'll get the news that the king is dead. And they know that. Many tears will be shed at this feast. And David stands up and looks at these guys in the face. Some of these guys, the, the older ones, were guys who were all those years ago hiding in caves with him. Living rough. And they fought a hundred battles by his side. Their bodies are covered in scars as his is covered in scars from all those wars. And scarred internally as well. And in this moment of huge emotion, David opens up and becomes vulnerable like he's never done before in his life. He's always had to look tough. Now, he's too old and too tired to look tough. He says, guys, I have to say to you, I've got one major disappointment in life. My ambition as a worship leader, a songwriter, was to build a temple. So that we could um, just praise God as a nation and I could lead you in worship and it would echo around that magnificent building. And I bought supplies, I hired architects, I got the land, I made preparation. And it would have been my life's crowning achievement. But I didn't do it. Because God said, It won't be you that will build the temple, your hands are too bloodied. Now, I don't want to dwell on whether or not that was a good reason that God gave. What struck me is that David was living his last days with that enormous disappointment. 
that he knew why. Now, we all in life will live with disappointment. I don't know what your big disappointments are. I've, I've got loads, loads of them. <coughs> and um, there are things that I would still love to do that I know I will never do for all kinds of reasons. Life is often about disappointment. And we can end our lives being embittered <coughs> because of them. Disappointment because of circumstances, disappointment because of God's will for our lives, disappointment because of our own failings, our flaws, our mistakes. But David saw something quite different in this moment. Yes, he had a heavy heart because of that enormous disappointment for which he um, couldn't really grasp the reason. I know I've shed blood, God, but I did that for you to, to extend this kingdom. But he saw beyond the disappointment to another fact. At this moment, as an old man, I know that God chose me to be king and he asked me to do this job for him. And you know what? With all of my flaws, all my inadequacies, I've done it. I've done it. Faithfulness is the most important quality that we can ever give to God. You and I are flawed. We always will be. We will always make mistakes that will always affect and blight our lives. We will never be the people that we ought to be. We will never be the men that God would like us to be. Not in the fallen world. Not with fallen flawed people. We will never actually get there. But what we can do despite all of our flaws. Is just be faithful. You know what God is asking you to do now. You know what God has called you into. In your family. In your church. In your workplace. Be faithful. Because in a broken and fallen world full of flawed men like us who will never, never be what we ought to be. The greatest thing we can be is just faithful to God. Keeping going. Even if it means plodding on, plodding on. We'll keep plodding. That's faithfulness too. Let's just pray. Father, help us as Christian men to realize how much you value us and value what we can offer to you. And may we be like David with all his flaws, courageous, trusting, faithful. Keep us serving you. And let us do so with sincere and open hearts for the glory of Jesus. Amen.